0: Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is a result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment, and other life and work based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people, and organizations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise. As well as my own synthesis of the key issues, strategies, tips, tools, and resources to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, why not go over to our site, qedod.com? If you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout, head to qedod.com forward slash burnout2019 for some goodies. Stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. And today I'm talking to Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Um, you may remember a few um, podcasts ago, I talked to Frank King about suicide and such like, and uh, he referred to the book he was writing in collaboration with, um, with what he described as the brains of the outfit, and, and, <laughs> and, here is, and, here, and here are the brains. So Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, good afternoon to you.
1: Oh, that's too funny. Thank you, Russell, so much for having me on the show today. And thank you to Frank King, my friend, and uh, really the heart of the project.
0: No problem at all. Um, so I obviously pick up from your accent that you're not from the fair shores of the United Kingdom. So where, where are you hanging out today?
1: So today I'm hanging out in, in the Washington, D.C. area, but my, my heart of my home is Colorado. All right. Fantastic.
0: Good. Well, thanks for joining us, Saddam. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, well, how, before we get into the meat of, this sort of um, the subject we're going to chat about, which is around men's mental health and suicide, um, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm a psychologist by training uh, and was in the field of mental health in a number of ways. I was a, a counselor primarily for first responders and college students, And then I transitioned over to health and wellness for a while. And then I was leading a leadership development program at a university. Um, And I was about 16 years in, in all of this experience, when my brother died by suicide in 2004, um, after a very uh, difficult battle with bipolar condition that proved to be fatal. And uh, that major loss, um, we were just two siblings, um, one of my best friends in the world that huge life transition got me very focused on uh, trying to understand um, understand suicide and, and what we can do to prevent it. And uh, that's led me in a couple of directions to, um, I guess, help make meaning out of uh, a big tragedy in my life, and I uh, I feel like he walks with me through this.
0: Yes, I can imagine. And it gives you, I suppose, um, context and meaning for the work you do as well.
1: That's right, that's right, I always say, you know, uh, people with lived experience lost survivors and suicide attempt survivors. Um, we, uh, we carry the flag forward in the, in the movement because it's, uh, it's really hard to get funding. It's really hard to get the appropriate resources. Um, but our, our pain and our challenges uh, fuel our energy to keep going. And believe me, nobody does this for the money. So you've got you to gotta have another motivation uh, to keep going forward um, and keep persisting.
0: Well, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that before we talk about the men's mental health side, if you don't mind. Because um, I was very taken when I chatted to Frank about this idea of um, suicide. And actually, it's quite tricky to work out the process that happens before someone actually takes their life. Because, of course, very few people are there to talk about it afterwards, are they? So how, how 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 do you make sense of the sort of decision or the... The process just before suicide takes place.
1: Well, let me say first that there are no universal narratives for suicide. There is no. not one pathway to it that's uh, as really as diverse as there are people. Um, but we do um, we look for common pathways. We look for ways that people might overlap in their in their process around this and. Um, according to some work by Dr. Matthew Nock out of Harvard University, um, there are at least five kind of generalized categories uh, of presentations of how people can, can come to this place of experiencing what we call suicide intensity. Um, we like that term, suicide intensity, because it really is a better descriptor of uh, kind of the fluctuations, the dynamic um, ebbs and flows of these feelings and thoughts uh, and, uh, and kind of captures this whole body experience. So um, for some people, as, as Frank probably mentioned, um, he's one of them, you know, that this is just always on the menu. It's, it's fairly low level, uh, it's just always there. And that's a, a whole different presentation than someone who is reacting strongly, we call it a surge in suicide intensity, reacting strongly to a precipitating event, not a cause, but an event that moved people moves people from thought to action. This could be a major disruption in the primary relationship or a major financial disruption or a significant trauma or loss, something that just sends waves of the suicide intensity um, and, and people don't think that they can cope with, with the overwhelming pain related to these events. Mm-hmm. Um, other groups have undulating suicide intensity. It kind of ebbs and flows throughout their life, not necessarily tied to any event. And some people have super high suicide intensity that's just like uh psychological torture so all of these presentations are different and each requires a different depth of understanding and a different type of intervention
0: mm. and and i think that one of the biggest challenges um in my experience of this and i actually uh, something i had someone i knew very closely who committed suicide themselves and um there was, no, there was no indication of it happening. They, they were effective at work. They were a sociable member of a team. Um, it was, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the time, uh, for, for, uh, for a period afterwards, the people in his workplace, because he committed suicide at work, we were sort of, you know, scratching our heads thinking, you know, how could we have missed it? But I don't think necessarily, I think as Frank was explaining, people don't necessarily give the game away, do they? Well,
1: most people actually do, um, and their expression of it is often very indirect. So when we ask people who survived near-fatal suicide attempts, so they should have died, yeah. um, uh, did you ever communicate this to anyone? Um, the overwhelming majority will say, yes, I did. But the way that they communicated and how they, and who they communicated to um, isn't necessarily obvious to everybody, but in their experience, sometimes they feel like they're shouting from the mountaintops. Um, but they often you know, won't tell their their closest friends or their family members or at people at work but they might share it with somebody else um, and so that's why we really advocate uh, these these what we call gatekeeper trainings it's like cpr for suicidal despair to teach people the different types of ways that people communicate or as we call invite people into the conversation um, and they're often direct the other thing that we really talk about now in suicide prevention is um, don't wait for the big red warning sign flag to come swooping in. Often it's not that obvious. Um, We know that many people walk around with thoughts of suicide. It's a a fairly common way that people cope with overwhelming pain in their lives. So rather than wait for a huge warning sign to smack you upside the head, um, you assume it's there. Just assume that suicide is on the menu and you will behave differently. You'll ask different types of questions. Um, they'll surround people with different types of supports. Uh, so it's it's not always clear because a lot of people don't know what to look for or don't know what type of life events or life changes uh, can precipitate it. Um, and, and of course, very um, people of all different persuasions can have suicidal thoughts. It's not just kind of the, the you know, person with severe mental illness who maybe is experiencing homelessness. It is all kinds of people in all kinds of demographics and all kinds of socioeconomic statics and all kinds of performance levels. Um, it is uh, a again a way that people navigate pain and everybody has pain.
0: And Is, and is there a sort of a, a genetic link or anything along those sorts of lines to explain some sort of this?
1: Um, there is a, a bit of a genetic load. Um, when we look at identical twins raised apart we do see that's our kind of test for genetics, um, we do see shared risk for suicide, which tells us there's some kind of genetic piece to it. And, and I've heard a number of different explanations for this. Some some believe that it may be tied to a genetic predisposition to impulsivity. Other people think that it's a, a genetic uh, connection to uh, what we also know are um, vulnerabilities for different types of mental health conditions that are tied to suicide, like addiction and depression and, and so forth. So um, I don't spend a lot of time looking at, at genetics because uh, if I'm honest, other than um, educating our youth uh, that, that they might have a predisposition and to be on alert for that, um, there's not much we can do about genetics, no. at least right now. So I would like to uh, look at other ways that we can understand it in, in places that we can actually do work to um, get way upstream from the tragedy of suicide and build protective factors and
0: catch things where, when problems are small. So, so, why not unpack a couple of those so what what sort of things can you do to protect?
1: Yes, this is probably my favorite part of suicide prevention. the farther we get upstream, you know. The farther we get away from the absolute crisis, the life and death moment, um, the, the better we're going to be to save lives and to uh, prevent suffering. If you think about it, if all we did for heart attacks was run around with AED machines and you know shock people back to life, yes. we wouldn't be very effective in, in stopping heart attacks. Uh, we, we have gotten in front of heart disease by encouraging people to exercise and eat well and, and, and stop smoking and do all these other things. So. Um, getting in front of suicide um, looks a lot like uh, um, building a, a an a team building a quality social support network, not how many friends you have on Facebook, but your confidants, uh, people you trust, people who 've got your back, people who are willing to be there for you at three o 'clock in the morning, um, having a, a real solid a team uh, that brings out the best in you, you know at least three to ten people that you can you can turn to and they turn to you it's uh, it 's a group that Pulls together, um, or a positive uh, uh, identity of a social group that really enhances your well-being. So whether that's a hobby or a faith community or something like that, um, a sense of a belonging uh, to um, a positive social group that is really enhancing your life. And the other upstream factor is really having a sense of, of mission and purpose, feeling like what you're doing in your life matters, uh, that you're contributing to something larger than yourself. And again, this can often come through work or, or family um, or, or service to the community or uh, just something, something where you feel like what you do matters and other people notice that you matter. Mm-hmm. Um, other upstream factors are really about mental health and suicide prevention literacy, that we um, have a certain level of understanding about what contributes to both our happiness and well-being, as well as what puts us in jeopardy. Um, for for distress, overwhelm, and suicidal despair, and that we have knowledge about these things and the resources that we can help them, and it's just a matter of fact thing. It's nothing taboo or things that we hush hush and whisper in the corners. It's just like you know, where's the gym? Um, these are just comments that we can make to one another to help one another uh, again enhance our, our well being. And there's many more, um, but those are some of the big categories. Um, purpose and belonging um, are really important. No, that's fascinating.
0: I think uh, when Frank and I were talking, I was, I was mentioning to him, I'm writing a book about burnout and the, and and finding some correlation with, with burnout and suicide, but not necessarily strongly. But um, a lot of those things that you describe in there are actually similar in a way. And you've mentioned the word uh, overwhelm three or four times now. So could yeah. you maybe unpack that a little bit more for me?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um Again, no universal pathways to suicide, but one of the common things that many people experience is the sense of uh, there's just so much coming at people, uh, too big, too ugly, too fast, too many, and um, their, their ability to cope becomes uh, compromised, shut down. Uh, it's just like whenever you get jammed up in a signal, you know something's going to short out Uh, And and so the experience isn't so much often for people as a free will choice, like what kind of shoes am I going to wear today or what I'm going to eat for breakfast, but it's more of an experience of succumbing. Um, I have a good friend, David Covington, and he talks about how uh, he was on fear factor in his forties and he was challenged to like jump on this inverted bar at 40 feet in the air. And he was competing against all these 20-something guys. And he said, you know what, I know I'm not gonna win, but I just wanna get on that bar and I wanna hang on to that bar for just a little longer than these really fit 20-somethings. And you watch the video and he leaps, he jumps, and he's on there for less than a second. And he says, you know what, everything in my body, everything in my will, everything in my soul wanted so much just to hang on to that bar for just a little longer and I just couldn't. I just couldn't hang on, I had no choice. The pain was so great. I had to let go. And he said that experience has really gave him some compassion for other people who are experiencing this, again, too big, too ugly, too painful, too much, too many. Uh, and, and while they want to hang on often, they, they just can't. They, they're just overwhelmed to the point where they have no choice in their mind. They just succumb
0: to the pain. So they sort of give up. Not give up, they, they surrender themselves to the... Yeah, relinquish. Yeah, yes, just, relinquish, that's a good word, yeah. yeah. Mm, that's interesting. And, and, and of course, what we, all, we talk a lot about the, the person, the victim of suicide, as well, the, the perpetrator of suicide, and whatever the phrase might be. Um, but we, it must be particularly difficult for the people left behind from suicide. I, I wondered if have you, have you conducted a thought much about that sort of area.
1: Oh, yes. Well, I've lived through it and I've also uh, been with many, many other people through it. Um, In the United States, we we tend to call ourselves survivors of suicide loss. In the UK, the the phrase is more bereaved by suicide, people who are bereaved by suicide. Um, And uh, it is, uh, for me, the experiences was like a tsunami. So my brother died December seventh, two thousand and four. It was right before his thirty-fifth birthday. It was right before his birthday because he was born on Christmas Eve, uh, and it was so it was before Christmas. Um, and it was right before the Asian tsunami hit, that rocked the world. Everybody was just um, totally overwhelmed by this international disaster. And when I looked back at our family's experience month later, months later, um, it felt like our family had our own personal tsunami after his death. It was. Um, completely upending. The first uh, several weeks were experiences, for me anyways, of drowning, Um, fighting for every breath, like your brain works so hard to make sense of something that's so incomprehensible. Um, One of our uh, um, forefathers, and we call him the granddaddy of what we call postvention, uh, postvention, what happens after a suicide, he calls it uh, the canyon of why. Um, His name's Frank Campbell, and, um, you know, he's helped so many of us understand our grief experience uh, and how many of us just fall into this canyon of wine. Experience is so very much like drowning. You cannot, you know, night is day, day is night, you're not eating. Um, And I had these overwhelming experiences of fear that just kind of followed me everywhere. I I feared for my children. I I was like, who's next? And it's very hard to function when you're in this state of, of really everything you assume to be true and safe and good in the world is is shattered. And suicide's a trauma, really. And these are trauma responses, the kinds of things you would see after a sexual assault or a natural disaster or a car wreck. Um, I think people don't realize that the trauma level of suicide Uh, And then after that, the experience was very much of of just trying to come up for air and uh, looking around my landscape and realizing like everything had moved, like nothing seemed the same as it was before. At the time, I was uh, running a leadership program at a university and I just loved my work. I loved working with the students. It, It felt to me like the best use of my psychology degree to help these young, bright, fresh, excited young people kind of find their way in the world and express their gifts But when I came out of that experience of my suicide grief, just in those beginning days, like I could not find the joy in that work. I I just couldn't care. I couldn't find any meaning in it or any motivation. And I really thought I was going to lose my job, which is um, frankly, a common experience for lost survivors. Uh, They end up having these cascading domino effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ripple effects, aftershocks. I mean, the the, the metaphor went on and on uh, for me. And then and ultimately, the rebuilding process uh, took a lot of special teams. For me, it took a mental health community to, to kind of help me process grief and trauma. It took my workplace helping me with accommodations. It took my faith community to kind of uh, just kind of create this um, soul care uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So yeah, the aftermath is brutal. It's brutal for parents who lost children. It's brutal for kids who lose parents and siblings and and, you know, we don't talk about friends who lose friends or coworkers, but it's like you know this huge sh- tsunami effect. It just goes ripples out through space and time. Hmm. And it's
0: it's a difficult thing to bring up, It's a it's a difficult thing to bring out. But a lot of people describe suicide, people who perpetrate suicide, as being selfish. What's your sort of view on that?
1: Yeah, that's a really frustrating. Um, Piece of misinformation that has been perpetrated for forever, and, and and I get it. If you're just looking at the outside, it is um, maybe easy to make an assumption that somebody uh, was being selfish or self-absorbed. Um, but try living through it and see how you feel, <laughs> because it's actually quite a different experience for most people. Um, Dr. Thomas Joyner has written the book, "Why People Die by Suicide," And he has spent decades um, looking at and understanding this, the suicidal mind and, and the risk for a uh, risk model for suicide. and got his hands on just so many of our peer-reviewed journal articles to kind of do some meta-analysis of what drives people to this space. And his conclusion is actually, frankly, the opposite, um, that, that most people who experience suicide intensity, are feeling this experience of perceived burdensomeness this is what he describes this psychological construct it's perceived burdensomeness they have come to the conclusion that they are such a burden to other people in their life that their death has become worth more to the people who love them than their life is that in their mind that they are doing other people, they're adding value to other people by going. Um, and people make this conclusion in all different ways and in all different places. Some of it's a financial calculation. If there's been a financial disruption, the, the thinking is, well, if I go, my life insurance policy will kick in, at least in parts of the world. And uh, you know, my family's gonna get to keep the house and the kids will go to school and life will carry on. You know, I'm a drain or um, I've done something humiliating or shameful and I've brought pain to my family or my community. So if I go, I can take that pain away and people don't have to feel my pain anymore. And And in all of these, we say, yeah, because
0: I'm really, I'm really pleased you bring that up because I work a lot in the trans community. Um, And there are, there must be a higher percentage, statistically, high. people in trans They're... community who they, than 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 the national average, and and that's a lot about that, isn't it? It's about removing the burden of their of their problems from everybody else. And I'm i if we can do one thing today to get rid of this idea that people who are suicidal are selfish, because it just is not true, is it?
1: Well, and it just sets us up for yeah. distancing ourselves from people who really need connection, yeah. for blaming and shaming people who really need, uh, who could benefit from empowerment and compassion. Um, it's just set us up to be adversaries rather than allies um, yeah. with people who are experiencing suicidal despair.
0: And it makes it trickier for the suicidal person or the person with suicidal thoughts to actually share what they're thinking, because if oh, a, yeah. if if there's, there's a so much fear, so really much fear of judgment,
1: mm-hmm. yeah that people won't understand and frankly if you have that world view you're not going to understand yeah. you're not going to really take the time to understand the pain
0: so is it I, I, um and i know and i know sometimes um psychologists are guilty of reductionism to the to the point of absurdity but is it worth is it worth just actually asking people who you know and care for if they've ever had suicidal thoughts i mean is it as simple as that
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it is. uh, It to start the conversation with compassion and assume that it's there. The only way we get to know. Yeah. There's no currently. There's no blood test, no CAT scan, no MRI, no no X ray. The only way we get to know, is is through conversation. And the only way that people will tell us, and there's a gazillion reasons why they won't. Really good reasons why they will withhold this information. The only way is if we're trustworthy. And we open up a conversation from a point of compassion and I'm, I'm here with you and I'm going to walk with you and we're going to figure this out together. And I have ideas and resources we can explore together. I mean, that's the only way we get through
0: this. And if you talk to someone and they tell you that they do have suicidal thoughts, but you are not gifted in the resource department, where, where are good places to be able to point someone to be able to give this sort of support?
1: Yeah, that is, uh, that is where the rubber meets the road. So first of all, um, to all the listeners, if someone discloses to you that, you're, that they're thinking about suicide, um, you have earned a gift. And so the first words out of your mouth should be thank you. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for trusting me. Um, when, when they might be expecting rejection or, f- or f- you to freak out or whatever, um, you come into this conversation with gratitude, that's going to get you off on a really good start. Um, and then the next thing you should say is, you know, I'm with you. Uh, one of the things that often happens in, when people disclose their suicidal thoughts is they start to get what we call hot potato. They, they start to get bounced around because everybody's very frightened. So some kind of expression of partnership and collaboration can also be helpful in letting that person know that you, you've got their back and that they're not going to navigate this alone, that you're going to walk with them. Um, and then the third piece really is, and I have some ideas. And and these resources, uh, you know, are different in different countries. But most countries have some kind of crisis line, um, and some kind of place that you, you people can call together or text together. Um, that's a that's a great place to start. Um, I also really include, encourage people to develop that 18 to develop a list of of three to ten people they can call at any point in the day or night and just you know show up and and listen and be there for for that person. Um, we encourage people to develop some emotional regulation skills so that they can cope with their overwhelming pain. Um, one, of the, one of my uh, resources that I always turn to is a, is a website called Now Matters Now, nowmattersnow.org. And it teaches people um, dozens of these emotional regulation skills that they can try to kind of get through experiences of really intense feelings, whether it be dread or overwhelm or anxiety. Um, just to help cope and get them to the other side. So, so my, my, my short version of this is get a, get a list of crisis resources that are available in your community. Um, get a list of, of mental health resources. Uh, some workplaces have employee assistance programs that you can get access to for free. Um, peer support programs like various 12-step groups or um, other types of peer outreach can be helpful for people. Uh, And then a list of of self soothing, distracting, and coping strategies that they can use um, on their own to start to empower themselves to to live through these difficult experiences. Fascinating.
0: I I, I wanted to go and talk about men's mental health, but I don't think I want to today, if that's okay with you, because I think what you talked about is so powerful. I'd like to keep the two things separate, if that's okay with you.
1: That's totally okay, Russell. I would be. I'd love to come back. I'd love to come back and talk about men's mental health and uh, some of the initiatives we have in those spaces, as well as workplace stuff. If you ever want to go down that path, that's a, a big passion of mine as well.
0: Well, if people would like to know about you, how can they get hold of you, or talk to you, or contact you, or see more of your work?
1: yeah thanks a lot so my website is sally spencer and that's a spencer with a c-e-r sallyspencertomas.com i also have a podcast called hope illuminated where i interview uh, international thought leaders on their stories science and strategy for suicide prevention Um, and uh, i'm on all the social media platforms facebook twitter linkedin instagram youtube i would love to connect
0: not tiktok yet then
1: not TikTok. I don't know TikTok, but uh, the others. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, I, and don't get me started with Snapchat. Don't get me started. I have been tried, my, my the youth in my life have tried to teach me Snapchat forever and it's just not sticking. So I, think, <laughs> I give up.
0: The good news with Snapchat is it's sort of disappeared now, so you can forget oh about it. thank
1: you. God. Thank God. So try I try it. TikTok
0: because it is, one of the, <laughs> it is one of the great wastes of our lives. But, oh, my uh, gosh.
1: Sally, you no
0: an, an absolute joy to talk to you today. Thank you so much.
1: Russell, I am so grateful to be asked. This has been an absolute pleasure, um, and uh, thank you.
0: No problem. You take care. All right, take care. Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash burnout2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout and you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience until the next episode keep on thriving